0: I'll be reading from Revelation chapter 5. If you would, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Here's the word of the Lord. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll saying, "'Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth.' Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. I think uh, was almost semi, i think it was only semi-joking when I was thinking this week about, you know, someday years from now we can tell our our grandchildren and great grandchildren about that once upon a time where we used to attend large gatherings this idea of these big events. And I was thinking about different big events. I mean, it's the gathering thing that is the most elusive thing, even right now, as some states are opening up and loosening up things, loosening up their practices. It's the large-scale gathering that seems to be the most elusive thing to figure out. But I've thought about different, I was thinking this week about different times where I've been at Really big gatherings, the times that really I was just impressed, at like a scale that I had not seen before. I can remember walking into a concert, to a Billy Joel concert, walking into a, to Rice Stadium, and somebody walking up to me and handing me front row tickets which apparently is how Billy Joel hands out his, he doesn't sell front row seats, he just hands them out in the stadium. So there I'm sitting on the front row, or standing on the front row, and really impressed, of course, being able to grab Billy Joel's leg when he comes by, but I was also impressed at one point to turn around and look and just see the sea of people, and just being amazed at the idea of the scale of the thing that I was part of. And I was thinking of, of sporting event, I was thinking of being there outside of the stadium for the last out, of, of one of the many Cardinals World Series championships. Uh, and then having that moment where I run inside as soon as that third out is to celebrate with all of these fans, to have this awesome event, this historical moment for the fan base to celebrate. And again, just thinking of the massive scale of how many people are gathered. And I don't know, you think about, you may have been to big events. Maybe you were at a place where you gathered on the mall in Washington for one of these, you know, million people gathering at some at and thing. Maybe you went down and to Chicago for a parade a couple years ago for some kind of event that happened. I can't remember what that was. But, you know, you, whatever it was, that you, as some kind of big event that you were part of, and you can think about the, the scale, but nothing, nothing that any of us have experienced can prepare us for the scale of the scene here in Revelation 5. What we have in Revelation 5 is unfolding um, some of the most significant moments in history, in fact arguably it's the most significant moment in history, but it's inviting us to consider that moment from the perspective of the throne room of God. And if you want to unlock what's happening here, and I think it starts to unlock what happens in the chapters to follow, Just consider that when we open up in in verse 1, that you're watching the Easter story from another perspective. That what's happening here is you're watching not just Easter really, what you're watching is Easter is being talked about, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but what you're seeing actually is Acts 1. And what happens in Acts 1, the opening of Acts, Jesus is still on the earth, he's been gathering with his disciples, he has final words for them. And then he ascends, the ascension of Jesus. This chapter 5 is the ascension of Jesus from the perspective of God's throne room. Now let me remind you of where we were at. If you weren't here last week, if you didn't tune in last week, or if you've just forgotten, Revelation 4, John has been ushered by Jesus into this throne room. He's been ushered into this vision of the throne room of God. And the throne is key to Revelation chapter 4. You see the throne repeated over and over. John is looking at the throne, and you're seeing all of these these heavenly beings surrounding the throne. There are these four living creatures around the throne and there's these 24 thrones with these 24 elders that are surrounding the throne. And as awe-inspiring and majestic as that throne room is, all of it is about worship. All of these heavenly creatures are worshiping God. And that's been a big theme throughout Revelation 4 is they're just worshiping the Lord their God. No matter how awe-inspiring or majestic or powerful or remarkable these creatures and beings are in Revelation 4, everyone bows before the throne of God. And then chapter 5 opens. And here what we open is we look at the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And as I mentioned last week, there's not a lot of description of, of God here. There's been a description of the throne And now you get a couple of descriptions in chapter 4, but now you get this description simply that there is this right hand, there is this sealed scroll written on front and back. And what is this scroll? Um, And it it really is a moment where, again, theologians can go crazy over this moment because there's a lot of things. It's kind of like a symbolic overload. Overload. If you were trying to understand what is this sealed scroll, you probably would begin in Daniel 12, because there's a sealed scroll or sealed book there in Daniel 12. And that sealed scroll is sealed because it holds future events, these things that haven't happened yet. And when that is opened, that's when the next age or next stage begins to unfold. And maybe that's just the anchor. If you get nothing more out of what this scroll is all about, that's it, that it's the The scroll seems to hold the next phase of God's plan, and it's been sealed for a reason, and it requires something special to open. But there's other things going on. It it echoes actually the, it's a little bit of a Mount Sinai kind of moment. It's a judicial scene. The throne room is not simply about being king. It's also ruler, that image of rule, that this is a, a Sinai moment where the God reveals his covenant promises to a people there 's blessing and curses it 's a, a heavenly book. it 's like Deuteronomy, really, where there 's this sense of if you want to live in relationship with me, here 's what it is. And if you live in a good relationship there 's blessings. If you live in a bad relationship, if you reject me, here are the curses that 's how god 's people have been formed through this book. Uh, it 's a book of kingship kingship that josiah in second kings actually finds the scroll likely is deuteronomy that he finds and in a sense in rediscovering that that becomes his source of authority and a source of renewal for god's people the book in the old testament is also a book of conquest joshua one uh, he is joshua is called and actually the people of god are called to take the book and to study it And keep its words in order to prosper and actually there to even conquer the land. That's the idea of keeping the word, having the book of God that we hear, listen to, and keep. It's vital, the center of who we are as God's people. And here you have this this book that is sealed or the scroll that is sealed. And something has to happen. And that's what happens in verse 2. So this mighty angel claims, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals and that's an odd question because it's already been answered if you look back in chapter 4 there is one who is already worthy and that's God God the Father is worthy and he's the one holding the scroll so why do we have any debate about this why is there any worry and what unfolds in the next few verses really is kind of a stunning thing and it 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 invites us to picture something powerful that is happening in god's plan god is worthy god has the scroll and yet he's not the one that's going to open it verse three no one in heaven on earth or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it and i began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The problem is no one's worthy except God. And and God has been intent from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. His intent all along is to work his plan through humanity. The one that was supposed to be worthy was Adam. That's what he was created to do. He was created to rule over God's creation. To rule, and then when he creates Eve, because Adam's solitude is, is a is the single deficiency in creation. But it is Adam and Eve together, it is the son and daughter of, of the king that are there to rule over this creation, but in their sin they have rejected it. In their sin they have made themselves unworthy. But the promise of God always is that there would be a son of Adam that would come along and be able to be worthy. And that's the drama of Scripture unfolding. Because the sin, the power of sin and death is so much that everyone keeps on doing it. Everyone keeps running towards it. But God has promised that his plan will unfold through a worthy son of Adam. And no one is worthy. No one in all of the world, living or dead. And I think that's the under the earth image there in verse 3. No one in heaven or earth, there is no one who's died and gone and, and is in the presence of God. There is no one who's died and has not gone in the presence of God. There is no one living. No one is worthy. And so John weeps loudly. And when he does, he echoes Zechariah 1. And, and Zechariah, he is lamenting the failure of humanity and the stalling of God's plan. The reality of sin is this seems to be this great interference. And here in this moment, it seems to be the end, the stall. God's plan can't work without a worthy son of Adam. Cannot be done. And so there's this problem. And it's answered, though, immediately. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is the declaration of the one that is worthy. And when he declares that, he says two things, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Both of them are speaking in Old Testament language of the Messiah. The, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah is Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10. And in Genesis 49, you're speaking as Jacob speaks a blessings over, blessing over his sons. He speaks of Judah as this lion, this lion's cub. And that pro, that, that um, prediction, that prophecy has always been interpreted throughout the history as an anticipation of a Messiah. The Jews knew that a Messiah would come. Because, and he would be a conquering Messiah, and he would be coming from the tribe of Judah. He would be the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he would be the root of David, which is Isaiah 11 verse 1. He would come from, from, from Jesse's fruit, Jesse's root, from David's root. He would come from the lion of David. Both of those texts were, were texts predicting a Messiah, predicting their Savior. And both of those texts spoke of a conquering hero. So when we turn to the first century, when we see in the first century unfold, and so many of of the followers of Jesus struggling to identify Jesus as Messiah, they're looking at him. And even to the very end, what they're really expecting, even after his resurrection, some of them are expecting now he's going to go to war. They're expecting a military hero. They're expecting a conqueror. They've been prepared for that. They've been prepared to expect a conquering Messiah. Nothing prepares them for what comes in the next verse. Because it's a stunning picture of who Jesus really is. And that's really, I think, the vital question we just keep asking ourselves throughout Revelation. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We understand who Jesus is. Then we ask the follow-up question is, well, then who are we? Who is Jesus and who are we? And that's that's revelation. It's asking it over and over again. And it gives a a stunning, beautiful description. One of the questions through the years, we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. It's one of the most challenging doctrines in, in the church. God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. God is three in one. There's a lot of stuff that really gets confusing. But when people start challenging it, you really have to say, well, what are you saying? Who are, what are you challenging? Are you challenging that God is one? Well, that's pretty deep within our identity uh, and, and really deep within Israel's identity. But then you come, come to Jesus, and you take a people who for thousands of years has always said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's an anchor of their faith. And all of a sudden, something happens when they meet Messiah, when they see and proclaim Jesus as Messiah, and it happens right here in verse 6, which is... Um, They give this monstrously high view of who Jesus is. It's a stunning picture. In fact, what I would tell you, if that as what unfolds here in these following verses, if you read these verses and take them seriously, if Jesus Christ is not God, then Revelation five is pure blasphemy, because of what they say about Him. What does it say? Verse six: The Victor comes, that promised one of verse five. He's already conquered. Remember? No, I guess it didn't say anything. But you know, note there in verse five. The victory has already happened. It's past tense. He has conquered. So where was that victory? Victory was in the cross. The resurrection. The resurrection is a declaration of a victory that is won when Jesus cries out, it is finished, and breathes his last. Verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw, not a lion, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And that moment, imagine the people first hearing that when this is being read in the early church. It's breathtaking. The lion is a lamb. (laughs) We think of a lion. I mean, I think our images of the lion are pretty consistent with what their images of the lion. They saw the lion as this you know, it's the king of the jungle. It's the conquering hero. It's the warrior. The lamb, for them, deeply, is the image of sacrifice. The lamb is the helpless thing that they actually sacrifice. And, you know, it's and actually in a lot of their practices of sacrifice, they're ordered to keep that sacrificial lamb and raise it in the house. They, they, they befriend it. It's a pet. Give it a name. And in that, they see just the power of their sin displayed before them, that that innocent lamb must die on their behalf. That's the lamb. The lamb is a sacrificial thing. The lamb is slain, and there, for them, it's Passover. This is the image of defeat. This is death. And yet, that lamb, that slain lamb, that defeated lamb, has seven horns. The horn is a warrior's image. This is an image of power. There's seven horns. There's the image of completion, the seven days of creation. It's, the, it's, a, it's an image of, of a lamb who has a power over all of creation. This slain lamb has the power over all creation, and even more so, this slain lamb has the seven spirit, sevenfold spirit of God, something we've seen so far many times or several times in Revelation already. The sevenfold spirit of God. That is, the, 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 the Holy Spirit that once dwelled over creation now is ruling or giving power over all of creation. This is the Spirit of God sent out into all the earth. There is the sense of, create, of ruling over creation, of this power over creation, of this sense of um, mission in the work of the Lamb. This is the victor. The lion is the Lamb. The lion is the slain lamb with the power of the Spirit of God over the whole of creation. That's the victor. And he, that lamb, that lion lamb, goes and takes that scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. Now why is it that the lion is the lamb? Because the way that God conquered was to send a son of Adam who was also the son of God, who was himself. God made flesh. He comes as the lion to conquer, but his means of conquering is through the curse of the cross, through death. In his defeat is his greatest victory. The devil is tricked in the ultimate way that the devil participates in his own demise that he wants to kill this one. He wants to kill him to defeat the plan of God, to thwart the plan of God. He enters Judas, that he is working this great scheme to defeat God's son, and yet in his defeat, Jesus Christ is victorious. He claims that victory. He is the one who is worthy, and it is his sacrifice, it is his death that makes him worthy. Verse 7, he takes that, takes the scroll, and once he takes it, well then the party begins he is ruling over creation and now he is ready to open up the next phase of god's plan but before that plan begins which is what's going to follow chapter 6 and on really this is that moment we are we have seen the ascension jesus was departing from the from the disciples who told him i'm going to be with you to the end of the age and now we're here at the throne room watching that ascension as the Lamb, conquered, victorious, now comes and takes that scroll, worthy to sit at the right hand of the Father. And then the music begins. Verse 8, when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures, 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a bowl full of incense. And, and in that moment, you've got two things. There's this, this image of worship, but it's an image with, with the harp which is a kind of a 12-stringed instrument, so it's, it's like a guitar. So they, they all have their guitars, which makes sense to me, but they've got their guitars, and then they've got this, these bowls full of incense. Well, one, there is, um, when they grab the harps, that there's a sense where they are matching the story of Israel and the way that it worshipped. There were trumpets at the tabernacle. We've seen trumpets already earlier in Revelation. The trumpets were announcing, but there was no singing that we know of in mosaic worship um, mosaic worship was word-centered the reading of the word uh, there were prayers but we don't know of really of any practice of, of singing at all um, but in the temple uh, tabernacle then you've got mosaic worship and you've got the temple in the temple worship you've got a choir you've got an orchestra the instruments are the, in, are, are the, are the music of the temple. And here, that, that, that instrumental music is, this, is a picture of the pure joy. Worship as this pure joy at the victory of Christ. And the incense, again, the incense is uh, Leviticus 24, if you want to read some about it. It's, incense is, is a picture of, of a sweet aroma. That, that worship, is, it, it pleases God. I mean, when I hear incense, I'm thinking about smoking meat and the smell of a, of a smoker as it just goes hours on end. That's the image of worship. That's a piece of worship as it smells good. It, it's pleasing to God. The sacrifices, it's cooked meat. It smells pleasing. Um, the harp is, is David's instrument. It's a picture of pure joy. It's a picture of worship. Here there's the sweet aroma. Also with the incense, I think you've got the, uh, it's a picture of imperial worship. So this is better than the worship of the emperor. There's the worship Of the Lamb, but they are erupting with music and chorus, and this incense, this sweet aroma, is verse eight is the prayers of the saints, or they are the prayers of the saints. It's it's not that often that we get those clear descriptions in Revelation to say this is what this is. We've got it here, which is to say that what is unfolding in the rest of Revelation is an answer to the prayers of God's people. Isn't that interesting? That the prayers of God's people, the, prayer, God, the people of God here, is, we've seen in the letters to the churches, the people of God have been wanting God to show up, wanting God to give an answer. And here he gives his answer. This is the answer to their prayer. Now, it's going to be some hard times for the church, but he is leading them in an extraordinary way. This is the prayers of the saints that are being answered. And then they sing. And they sing this new song. And what is the new song that they sing in verse 9? Worthy are you. God, was, God the Father was worthy, now you, the Lamb, are worthy to take the scroll and open seals because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. That the, the cross of Christ was a ransom, and that it was accomplishing God's mission. And what was God's mission? At least here in this song, God's mission was to build a new people, a build a new nation from the nations. It's a refrain that we're going to hear several times in Revelation. You, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's all the people of God are coming from every corner of the earth. I mean, this is a refrain that has echoed in the hearts of those who have engaged in foreign mission throughout the centuries that it is the heart of God to see a church gathered not from one little place or one little corner or one ethnicity or one type of people, but to see the people of God gathered from every tribe and tongue. The work of God is to build a church from every single people group on earth. We We are part of an international body, an international nation. We are called into this worship as a gathered people of God transcending racial boundaries, ethnic boundaries, national boundaries. That's our deep identity, that's our ultimate identity. None of these other uh, things that we can associate with or find ourselves identifying with, whether it's nation or you know, citizenship and nation or being part of a particular ethnicity or part of you know, some background of whatever we've got, all of that thing falls away because we are a nation of people from every tribe and tongue who have been made or being made, verse 10, into a kingdom and priest to our God. We are a kingdom of priests. We are kingdom and priest, both kingdom and priest. Our destiny is to rule, that's kingdom, as worshipers, priests. We are a worshiping community. That's who we are as God's people. But that worshiping is a kind of rule. Our destiny is to rule. And again, Revelation sees both of these things coming through. We are going to see the people of God be established as eternal worshipers and eternal rulers, taking over those 24 thrones that surround the throne of God and ruling over a new creation. The key to all of this worship as it begins to unfold is that the Lion Lamb is worshiped by these creatures and beings as only God is worshiped. Jesus Christ is the only son of Adam who is worthy. And what they ascribe to him these the four living creatures and eventually these other uh, other beings here in the throne room of God are leading us to ascribe to Jesus the measure of his worth. He is worthy of worship, of adoration of joining in him as the one who has redeemed us. And now that worship, beginning with the four living creatures, and now it gets a larger audience. Verse 11, then I looked, and around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels. And now this gets, this gets big. It's the myriads of myriads. A myriad is 100,000. Typically the number. So a myriad of myriads would be 100,000 times 100,000. A myriads of myriads. You're in the billions now. There, there's Literally, he opens up and you see a scene. That's what I say nothing in our experience, no matter how large of a gathering you've ever been part of, no matter how big the gathering, nothing can prepare us for this moment right here where you literally see hundreds of, hundreds upon hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions upon hundreds of millions of angels. And thousands and thou- thousands of thousands, hundreds of thousands, upon hundreds of thousands, gathering around this throne room scene. And what do they do? They say, "Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." It's a sevenfold benediction, a sevenfold blessing that they heap upon Jesus Christ. And they are inviting now the angelic hosts, hundreds of millions upon hundreds of millions are now leading this worship that then, verse 13, the whole of creation is now called to join in. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The entirety of creation now is joining in this worship. And if we're seeing Revelation 5 as the story of the ascension, what is happening here? And I think here you're seeing the scene unfold to the very end. Watch as we move through Revelation. This is where we wind up. It's going to take some work. Some rough things are going to happen to those who have rejected Jesus. But eventually, every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea will say, He is worthy. The rest of the book will show us how that comes to be. But the entirety of creation is joining in this heavenly worship. And the last word there is then just those four living creatures, the one closest to the throne, now seeing the scene of the elders and the hundreds upon hundreds of millions, you know, billion angelic hosts surrounding, and the whole of creation now doing what they're meant to do, which is to worship Jesus Christ, the four living creatures simply say, amen. Amen. And they and the elders fall down and join in the worship. What do you do with all of that? Well, here at the throne, chapters 4 and 5 is a stunning, stunning two chapters. Some of the most beautiful images we have in all of Scripture. But here before the throne, we've got to just say a very simple thing. What you get from chapter 5 is that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our God. Jesus Christ is the key to life. He is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. He is the one that unfolds God's plan. He is the end of history and the beginning of the history that is to come. He is the worthy one. He's the only one who can make history unfold. He is the one who can bring what God has always set in motion to pass. So he's the key. Just like you can go with all your keychain and try every other key except the one, don't waste your time on trying to unlock life with anything else. Jesus is the key. Look to him as your Lord and your God. And when you see that, when you embrace that, just recognize that the worship of Jesus Christ is our reason. It's the purpose of our life. It's our end. Life is fundamentally about worship. Everything we do in our life is meant to give praise to the one who is worthy. Worship is the only true response when we see Christ for who he really is just as you see around this throne room, everyone who is as majestic and awe-inspiring, incredible as they are, when they see the lion lamb before them, they all bow and worship. Worship is our only true response. You were made for worship. And even in the context of chapter five, you were made to sing. It's kind of like I think of the image of the movie Elf and his dad is, you know, doesn't want to sing. He hates singing and There's that big moment at the end of the movie where it's finally when he opens his mouth and lets the song ring out that good things happen. That's what you're made to do. Open your mouth and sing of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. There was a song years ago in uh, Christian music. It was called The Concert of the Age. Talking about Revelation 5. This is the concert of the age. There's been nothing like it. There's nothing like it that we can compare it to. But we are invited to join here in the concert of the age, but not as a spectator. It's not me sitting on the front row of a stadium looking at a big bunch of crowd, cheering on one guy who's walking across the stage singing and playing his piano, or you know, the, the big crowd, one of many, and sitting in the crowd cheering on a bunch of guys who could hit a ball. We're not spectators. We're called as participants. Our lives are called to be participating in the worship of our King every day, in all that we do in the work that we do in the relationships that we have in the way that we spend our time the way that we spend our money how we navigate the good times in our life how we navigate the hard times it is an invitation to join in the concert of the age to be one of those who are opening our mouths and singing worship of the one who is worthy Jesus Christ is our lord and our god and the key to our life let's worship him Let me pray. God, I pray that you will help us, lead us to worship the one who is worthy. God, I pray that you will rise up in each of our minds the ways in which we are trying to unlock life with some other key and help us to look to Jesus Christ as the lion lamb who is worthy, who is worthy of our all. In Christ's name, amen.